The word of God from 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Continue standing with me as we um, commend this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for this season. We ask, Lord, by your spirit that you would meet with us. Um, Lord, we are, um, we believe, but help our unbelief. Uh, We love you and we confess we're stubborn too. And so soften our hearts, Lord, and open the eyes of our heart that we might see you and hear from you and learn. Because, Lord, we want to be changed, we want to grow. Would you help us this morning through your word? For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Again, my name is Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, as we've said multiple times, today is the first Sunday in Lent. And uh, during this season, we are beginning a new sermon series Uh, called The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, this is more of like a a topical sermon series. If you're new, what we normally do is we would take a passage of Scripture and just do like expositional preaching or kind of working through it. For this short sermon series, we're going to do it a little bit different. We'll be using lots of uh, passages from the Scriptures, kind of a more scriptural reflection on one topic. So I know we just um, read from 1 Samuel, and we just finished the sermon series on 1 Samuel, but I promise uh, I'll explain all of that here in a second. But I do want you to know that we were profoundly intentional in picking this sermon series because Lent is this extended season of sincere examination of our soul. It's a season of purposeful repentance, Lent is a time that we can, by God's grace, like really change. Like really change. Doesn't that sound good? We we shake off the inertia that keeps us stuck. We drag out these lists. We detox. We name our sins. And we see how Jesus is more delightful, more desirable than anything else. Now is the time to change. And so the seven deadly sins is this ancient way to examine what sin has actually done to us and all the ways that we need to be healed, frankly. And so this list reads kind of like a top 10 list of temptations and weaknesses that Christians have perennially struggled with throughout the centuries as they have uh, worked to mature in discipleship. 
Now, as far as we can tell, this list was first uh, compiled by this guy whose name is Evagrius Ponticus. And uh, he's a guy who lived in um, the fourth century, and he's numbered uh, among what historians call the Desert Fathers, if you know much about them. So a little history When Christianity was made legal, finally, in the Roman Empire, uh, the number of martyrs decreased significantly, as you might imagine. But there was always a reverence, an honor, and even a nostalgia for those whose love for Jesus led them to give all, to die as martyrs. And so many ardent Christians wanted a a new way to sacrifice all. And they saw withdrawal, or um, here's a fancy word, asceticism as an alternative. So asceticism is this sort of people who practice intense abstinence and, and lived hermit lives for continual contemplation. This life fully dedicated toward um, just a, a life totally about the contemplation of God. Uh, f- for those of you who know a little bit about church history, this would be what ultimately gives rise to the monastic period or you know, the monasteries. Now, I'm not here trying to baptize all of that, but what I am saying is that these men and women were deep <laughs> and they were really helpful thinkers. And so Evagrius wrote on these sins and Evagrius had this disciple, his name was Cassian, who tried to... Uh, you sort of make relevant this list for those, from those who are in the hermit life to people who are living more in communal life. And then after him, a couple centuries later, comes Pope Gregory I. He's known in history as uh, Gregory the Great. And he pared down their list to a list of seven. And that is the, the list that we're presently using. Uh, you might have heard these seven vices. They are uh, pride or uh, vainglory. Uh, greed, lust, gluttony, sloth, wrath, and then today's envy. That's today's topic. Now, just as a bit of trivia, because this is going to blow your minds for those of you who are maybe my age, maybe a little bit older, but the characters of Gilligan's Island, y'all know, a few of you know what I'm talking about. There's seven of them. They all are imitate these seven vices. So the professor is pride, Marianne is envy, the millionaire is greed, Mrs. Howell gluttony, ginger lust, skipper wrath, and of course Gilligan is the slothful one. And I think we can agree that times and cultures change, but these vices are perpetually relevant. Now the desert fathers who first created this list, they were way ahead of their times. They understood how sin is this all-consuming reality, whether we recognize it or not. Uh, To kind of help you understand what I mean by this, like um, when our kids were little and we were potty training them and they would start doing the dance. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? The dance. And then they say those words, I got to go to the bathroom. At that moment, it is an all-consuming reality. Everything stops. What do you do? You get them to the bathroom. It is like serious. Everything stops. You deal with this thing. 
It's all consuming. That's what, how the Desert Fathers thought about it, is everything stops. This is an all-consuming reality. And here's why they said that. When the Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about this, about sin, it's not just a verb, like we're sinning. I mean, it is a thing. The way that he talks about it is he sees sin as this alien, invasive, spiritual power that seeks out like this hungry lion. He sees it like a, like a cancer that has been released upon the world, and it dwells in the world, and it acts like a parasite. And if it's not resisted, if it's not contradicted, then it grows and metastasizes And eventually, it takes over. It is an all-consuming reality. See, sin, if it is not dealt with, it causes irreparable damage. So sin creates in us a vice. It might have been better to call this sermon series the seven deadly vices, Because these seven labels are not like seven individual acts of sin. What they're speaking of are this habituated way of being. Or to put it differently, they are seven ways in which sin works in us. So everything else, everything that we do, every sort of contradiction of God is just downstream from these seven forms. And it comes at us. Time and time again. And if we relent, if we give ourselves to it time and again, then that thing that the sin is doing becomes intuitive. It becomes reflexive in us, like second nature. So like, for instance, if you tell a lie, and then you tell another, and then another, and you keep doing this, then it becomes very comfortable. It becomes very easy to lie. And before long, you're not just a person who tells lies. You have been misfigured, disfigured, deformed into a liar, you see. That is a vice, a habituated way of being, and it is all-consuming. So this author, Rebecca DeYoung, she writes this book called Glittering Vices, and she has been so helpful for me um, as I've studied this. She says, we start by choosing sin, but before long, it chooses us. And she gives this illustration. So she's like, You're, imagine skiing down a mountain. I think we can imagine that, Denverites. First time down First day of the season, fresh powder day, right? You carve your path. You choose your path. But day after day, skier after skier, season after season, thousands of other skiers, paths get carved and moguls get built. And you don't choose your path. The mountain chooses you. It directs your path. That That's a vice. It's a power unto itself that robs you of your ability to say no. It's addictive, you see. When you first indulged, you thought that you were the one practicing your free will. Oh, no. Now, it's not that you want to do that thing. You have to do that thing. You've been habituated. 
And where there are no more choices, you are stuck in the carved path. And sin robs us of our ability to choose, of our ability to say no. And that's why the Bible calls it a cosmic slave master. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus is starting an exodus movement of freedom from this slave master. Now this reality, what I'm describing to you, it's not just cute talk for Christians. This is relevant for all people in all places and all times. And so to talk about the subject, I'm not not just trying to be like some negative Nancy here. You know, I'm not trying to be a fear monger, just always talking about sin. Uh, That's not what I'm doing. But we need to talk about this and examine this. It's relevant. I have heard so many like young people especially who say, you know, I would believe in God if I could. But when I see the kind of human suffering or the unanswerable tragedies in the world, I just can't find a God in all of that. Now, the Bible attributes the pain in this world to this very large topic of sin. And if we are going to have a Christianity that is workable and meaningful to those who ask, we need to have a Christian response to it. We need to make sense of the world and really to make sense of our own hearts, if we're honest about this. We need to talk about this because we've got questions. Like, what's wrong with me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What, what's keeping me from being a whole person? Because it is so naive And I know this is what's so present in our schools and in the media, but it is so naive to diagnose the complex and deep problems of the world to this issue of education, right? If you just educate people, everything would be better. False. It's not true. And I do feel like I'm seeing a tide turn. I feel like culture, although they're still fumbling for the right words, is slowly recognizing this, and it's reflected in our art in our literature, our music, and even in our movies. From Steinbeck to Tupac to even Quentin Tarantino, all write, sing, or tell stories that deal with the effects of sin. Uh, You see this in our horror movies. You know, when I was young, a horror movie, the basic plot line was like, um, just like a bad dude who was probably hiding in a corner, who walked really slow but could always catch up. You pop out of like dark corners or maybe your dreams and try to kill you. I was like, every horror movie was like that. But then when I was in college, something started changing. Have you heard of this movie, The Blair Witch Project? Okay, listen, I'm a total chicken. I do not like horror movies and I do not commend them to you. Um, but, and, and I would especially not commend this movie to you if you have any motion sickness at all. Like, don't watch it. But what's interesting about the movie is that it's um, filmed through like handheld cameras, which that are like by these three young aspiring filmmakers. And so the camera, of course, is very jumpy. But through this first person filming, you get the feeling that someone else or some power is there. There is a reality that's right, that's like plaguing me, even though the film not once ever shows a monster 
or a person or a ghost. It's just this feeling. Something is just there, a power that is invasive and enslaving. And as you watch this horror movie, one thing is clear. The protagonists are anything but free. Although they clearly hate the supernatural power, they're still under its control. They are under its death sentence. See, even our art, the stories that we tell, sense, senses this cosmic power, something. It's beguiling, it's harmful, it's enslaving, it's an invasive cosmic tyrant. Sin is a power It is pervasive, and it convinces you that it doesn't even exist and that you're free. (laughs) But here we are, using Lent, using the scriptures to empower us to get out of slavery. And that's why we're going to be taking time this season of examining these seven deadly sins. So I have used this introductory sermon uh, I have had an extended, you know, introduction to introduce all seven, but I want to just use the rest of the sermon to just give attention to the very first sin, and that is the sin of envy. And I'm just going to, you know, note takers, I'm just going to ask two questions. What is it, and how can we be healed? First, what is it? So in the Bible, there are actually several stories that illustrate the power and the destruction of envy. The, probably the, most, the biggest one is like Cain and Abel. Uh, you have Joseph and his brothers. You have Rachel and Leah. You have Jacob and Esau. And um, I know that I just spent months studying David and King Saul. Uh, but here we are again. I, I've selected this very particular part of their story. And if you'll remember, we're in chapter 18. It picks up right after the young David has killed the giant. He's killed Goliath, uh, the Philistine champion. And he's inscripted into Saul's army. And he is just like this phenomenal soldier, right? He's a hero of sorts as Israel is fighting against their arch enemies, the Philistines, right? And so David has a ton of young, admiring Uh, you know, um, young ladies who are all googly about him. They've even written music about him. Verse 7, the song. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens thousands. And then in verse 8, tells us that this angered, displeased Saul, right? David's getting everything. He's probably even going to get the kingdom, And here, verse 9, is the key verse that literally interprets the last third of the entire book of 1 Samuel. It interprets all of Saul's craziness, his mania. Verse 9 says, And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul eyed David. Now the word I in this sentence is a verb. Right? Saul is eyeing him. Now, in the Hebrew, the root connotes a kind of wickedness. There is a wicked eye. This verse is the single most clear illustration of envy in the entire Bible. And here's why. Envy 
is a sickness of the eyes. Jesus himself would pick up on this in the New Testament. When he's teaching his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, these are Jesus' words. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So in the Middle Ages, Dante, in his Divine Comedy, if you remember, we have, most of us had to read this in high school. In the second section of his Divine Comedy, in Purgatory, he depicts the envious as having their eyes sewn shut as punishment. Why was that their punishment? Because in life, they refused to look upon anything good, beautiful, anything happy. They refused to look upon it if it didn't belong to them. And so envy defined. Envy is sorrow over another's good. Envy is sorrow over another's good. You look and you see the good of another and you despise it because it isn't yours. So here's my question, Denver Prez, this morning. Are you envious? Are your eyes sick? Saul eyed David. What do you eye? Let me explain the mechanics of envy with an illustration Every book I read about the, this, every commentary cites the story. It's too good not to tell you. So in the 1980s, there's this critically acclaimed movie about Mozart. It was called Amadeus. It won all kinds of awards. A great movie. So the movie follows Antonio Salieri. He's a composer. He's this committed Christian living a chaste life in Vienna and Salieri wanted to use his musical gifts to the glory of God, right? To create music that stirs people's hearts to the glory of God. And he was pretty good. But pretty good doesn't matter much when you live in the same town and time as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And so the movie actually opens with Salieri as this old man giving a confession to a young priest even though, quite frankly, you realize he's already abandoned the faith in a fit of envy. So he's talking with this young priest, and he asked, you know, the young priest if he likes music. And he's like, oh, yes, I, I do very much. And he goes, well, then you'll be familiar with this. And he starts playing. He plays a little bit of music that he himself has written. And uh, the, the, the priest says, huh, no, you know, I've, I've never heard that before. He goes, well... How about this one? And he starts playing the song, and you can see him remembering the song that he played, brought the house down in an opera. So like Salieri is like remembering this moment, playing this another piece. And the priest is like, yeah, no, mm -mm, never heard it before. And then he says, well, have you ever played this? Dun, 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 you know, something like that. And the priest says, Oh, yeah, I totally know that one. I did not know that you wrote that. And Salieri says, I didn't. It's Mozart. He hated Mozart. He, he looked at Mozart. Mozart was irreverent. He's this buffoon punk 
kid, but he was clearly touched by God. And his name was Amadeus, Latin for loved by God, even though he cared very little about God. But he had this obvious talent And Salieri hated Mozart's gift. He hated his success. He even hated his name, loved by God. And ultimately, he ended up hating God for giving Mozart that gift because he felt like he deserved that gift. And he stewed in this envy. And he ultimately conspired and succeeded in Mozart's early death. Envy is slightly different than other sins in that it needs another person. I mean, right, you can be slothful or prideful all by yourself, but envy, envy needs an object, something to hate, something to obsess over, to compare with, you see. So if you can think back to like David and Saul, I mean, what Saul could have said, he could have been like, hey, yeah, I'm all about Israel. I'm a public servant. I went into public service to honor the God of Israel. We are so lucky to have a hero, a champion like David, and I just want to shine a light on him. I want to support him every moment I can. I hope that he takes on great leadership in our, uh, in our country, and I hope to sponsor him and support him in that. He could have said that. He did not. That's not what happened to Saul. See, whatever good was happening To David, Saul made it about himself. Now listen, church, in my life, people have come to me confessing their anger, their slothfulness, their lust. But very rarely do people say, you know, I am catastrophically an envious person. Help me. But here's the thing, I know that we are all formed or deformed by it. Our whole economy runs on envy. Y'all remember like in the 80s, the wolves of Wall Street? What did they say? Greed is good. Capitalism runs on it. But times have changed. Now, the snakes of the Silicon Valley say envy is good. Entire economies run on it. Every bit of social media expects that you will look at another's life and be envious. In fact, envy is what keeps you scrolling and scrolling, hoping that just maybe that seemingly perfect person, the person that you want to be like who's famous, maybe you'll end with a story of their downfall. We experience sorrow in their good. You get that that feeling? And we experience pleasure in their demise. This is the darker part of who we all are. We need to be honest about this. And here are the stakes. It's love. (laughs) It's love. Let, Let me explain. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to his friends at the churches in Corinth, he really wants them to embody Christian love, but they're a little bit confused. And so he clarifies what love is and what love is not. 
And so y'all remember this, the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Paul says, If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Why? He continues, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. So love does not envy. Love does not look upon the good of another with sorrow, but it looks with thankfulness and gratitude, right? Let me keep explaining, and I want to borrow from the Apostle Paul. So in Romans, Paul explains that love is the ultimate mark of what it means to be a Christ follower. And in Romans chapter 12, he explains more about love. He says in verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Well, how, Paul? He says, well, abhor what is evil, hold to what is good. And how do we do that? He continues, and he tells you in verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. All right, Denver, listen, follow me on this. Envy destroys love because it makes you self-absorbed. Because at the heart of our faith is love that empathizes, right? It connects with others. It sees the world through the eyes of others empathetically, right? This is how come we can rejoice with those who rejoice, or this is how come we can weep with those who weep. Even though that thing didn't happen to us, we we can see the world through their eyes and we weep with them, right? Envy reverses this. Envy causes you to weep when others are rejoicing, Envy causes you to rejoice when others are weeping. This compulsion to compare makes love impossible. This was the deadly fault of Saul. And not him only, but it's in all of us. I want to be the gifted one, and I can't stand it that this other person who put in less work is better than me. I wanted to be dating, or I wanted to have a child at this time, and I can't get excited for my friend who was less chaste than me, by the way. I want to have that body And that person has what I want, and they don't even have to change their diet or exercise. And on occasion, we gloat at their misfortune. When they gain weight, when they divorce, because you knew they shouldn't have gotten married anyway. And then we gossip about it. We call it prayer requests. We gossip about it, and we find pleasure in their demise. And some of you are saying, Ronnie, come on, come on. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about, Ronnie. Yeah? Have you ever, like, Instagram stalked or Facebook stalked an old love interest? Or maybe you Facebook stalked a new love interest of your old love interest just to make sure that he or she isn't as great as you. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. What about someone who 
joined faculty the same year as you, got published fast, got tenure way before you. And then you found out that they plagiarized and got caught. I was so sad for them. You see what I'm doing here? We compare, and we either feel sorrow for the good of another, or we rejoice when they fall from grace. That is envy, not Christian love. And it is a vice that is habituating us. It's disfiguring us to the core of our being. And that's why it is deadly. Okay, so I asked of envy, what is it? It is sorrow over another's good. Let's finish just very briefly with our second question. How can we be healed? How can we be healed? The very first thing you have to do is mourn. This is precisely the space that Lent as a season creates for us. It's a season of detox, to be honest, to name, to mourn our sin. Have you ever wondered why Jesus would say those like really puzzling, puzzling things? He would say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a comfort that has to come from outside of you. And when it does, because of your mourning, then envy slowly is starting to erode. The grief over your sins starts habituating something new. You're habituating something new and something beautiful, something better. Now, mourning, this is where we start, but this is not enough. Because right, when we subtract something, we create a vacuum for other pathologies. Deeply entrenched pathologies are impossible to fix apart from Christ. You can't fix your own envy, church. It's bad news. You can't just force feed your heart with gratitude, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Oh, it's just, it's just an honor to even be nominated. You can't just use logic. Well, I know that envy only hurts me, so I'm just going to count my blessings. Counting your blessings is a fabulous thing to do, but it won't fix you. The only cure for the evil eye is that we need to gain a new way of seeing. A new way of seeing ourselves and a new way of seeing others. A new way of, of ascribing self-worth that is not, listen, that is not comparative with others. One that does not see self-worth and dignity in any way except in a way that is completely gracious, completely unconditional. And in order to do that, we must start looking at something New. We need to stop looking at ourselves and look at something that can keep our gaze, something that is stunning, something that is enthralling, something that you just 
can't take your eyes off of. Not because you're willing your eyes to look at the thing, but because it has wonderfully bewitched you by its beauty. What is it? It's the gospel. The gospel says, while the whole world has turned its face away from your ugly, ugly envy, the gospel says that Jesus has turned his face to us. And more than just telling us to love people better, the gospel tells us that we have been loved, that we are loved by God. And the gospel tells us that this is a settled reality. Not because you perform well or because you mourn hard enough. Not because we are sinless. It is a settled reality. We are loved because God's preeminent love to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And instead of competing with us, Jesus laid down his life for us. And therefore, your self-worth and your dignity is incomparable God does not compare you to others. He does not compare you to anyone. In God, there is no comparison, no competitiveness. You are compared to no one. And God's unconditional love, his unconditional desire for you remains because of Christ. That's the gospel. And if you could truly believe what I'm, what I'm saying right now, if you could just even believe an ounce of what I am saying, it would keep your gaze. It's so beautiful, so compelling. There's nothing like this in the world. It is unique in the gospel alone. If you could believe it, then the eyes of your heart would be irresistibly fixed on Jesus. And as our eyes are fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, then and only then will the wicked eye of envy be healed. But it is a hope and a reality is on offer to all of us. Amen? Amen. Look forward to studying all of these with you in the coming weeks.